Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 66 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm honored to welcome Paul Davies, a British-born theoretical physicist, cosmologist, astrobiologist, and best-selling author of more than 30 books. Davies received his PhD in physics from University College London in 1970 and is currently Regents Professor and Director of the Beyond Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science at Arizona State University in Tempe. In 1995, he was awarded the Templeton Prize in a ceremony at Buckingham Palace for his work on the deeper meaning of science. And today, we'll continue in that vein, primarily discussing issues related to his new book, What's Eating the Universe? and Other Cosmic Questions, just out from the University of Chicago Press. Davies joins us from Tempe. Paul, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Well, I'm delighted to be here. First off, congratulations on your book. It's an amazingly accessible account of the great cosmological issues of our day. How would you define the term cosmology? (laughs) Some people might even (laughs) confuse cosmology with cosmetology, but that's a whole other thing. Uh, Well, it's true that the term cosmetic and cosmology has the same root. It sort of means whole and complete and beautiful. And the scientific subject of cosmology refers to, indeed, the whole universe. So where astronomy uh, deals with individual objects, stars, galaxies, and so on, cosmology is the large-scale structure and evolution of the cosmos as a whole. So it's the system in its totality, and cosmologists busy themselves with that. So why does cosmology fascinate the mainstream public? The general public knows very little, really, about the Big Bang and inflation and the processes that led to stars and galaxies. So why are we so inherently interested in what's beyond our atmosphere? I think human beings have always been fascinated with what is up there and out there. Uh, Our ancestors, of course, spent a lot of time looking at the sky. These days, we spend less time and it's harder to see the sky, but it was critical for the survival of our ancestors that they had some understanding of the seasons, uh, the the motion of the uh, sun, moon, planets, and so forth. Uh, They would have been very preoccupied with what's above our heads. Uh, The other thing uh, that occurs to me really is that uh, science can appear to many people frightening and mysterious. Uh, The one thing about astronomy and by extension cosmology is that it's sort of safe science. It's about what's way, way out there. And most people don't fret if they're uh, concerned, for example, about, you know, chemistry or geological processes or meteorological processes uh, always seems, you know, sort of vaguely threatening. But astronomy is a safe subject. Uh, But the last thing I would say, and this is probably closest to the correct answer to your question, is that I think fascination with cosmology stems from the same root as preoccupation with religion. People really want to try to understand how they fit into the great scheme of things. Uh, I don't think anybody uh, would really like to think that their daily round, the humdrum existence of daily life, is all there is. We like to feel that we're part of something bigger, part of a grander system. And so fascination with cosmology comes from trying to position ourselves in this larger scheme. In science, of course, uh, that means trying to understand the totality of the universe and the laws that underpin it. It's interesting that you mentioned that the average person, sometimes they, they're not threatened by cosmology because it's so far out. It's, it, we're talking about the, the universe as a whole. But people do, every time there's a news report of about, a, about a new stellar mass black hole that's found, I actually get people saying to me, you know, do you think that uh, black hole is going to eat our solar system? I, I don't, do you get the same response? 
Uh, not for black holes, but the one thing that people do seem to get fixated about is asteroids uh, passing uh, close to the Earth. When is the next one going to hit? Will we go the same way as the dinosaurs? Right. That seems to get a lot of press. And in fact, there's scarcely a day goes by when my news feed doesn't talk about the latest near miss. Uh, so that's something that people are aware of. But of course, now we're talking about the opposite extreme, not the grand totality of the cosmos uh, with all its billions of light years, but something in our cosmic backyard that might actually slam into Earth. So the existing Big Bang theory assumes the universe had a finite beginning very quickly followed by an inflationary expansion of the cosmos into the expanding universe we now inhabit. Is that how you would phrase it? The simplest picture that we have of the Big Bang is indeed an explosion into existence a finite time ago, we think now about 13.7, 13.8 billion years ago, uh, from nothing that preceded it. And then a split second after that, the universe leapt in size by an enormous factor. That's called inflation to distinguish it from the run-of-the-mill expansion. Uh, and that inflationary phase stretch the universe so much that any irregularities that were present in it prior to that, just after the Big Bang, would have been sort of stretched to death. Uh, and that would explain the overall homogeneity of the universe, its smoothness, uh, its uniformity. And that was the standard picture really for quite some decades. But then there was a bit of a rethink that, well, if the inflationary phase erases all traces of what went before. Why do we need a Big Bang at all? Maybe there wasn't a Big Bang. Maybe the universe is, in some sense, infinitely old. And then that's a different model. But it makes very little difference now to us when we look back at the early universe, look back at the traces of the Big Bang. Uh, the picture that you have, the simplest picture of bursting into existence from nothing and then leaping in size uh, by an enormous factor and then... After that, uh, when inflation ends, uh, resuming uh, a type of expansion that slows with time rather than speeds up with time, that's pretty close to the picture that we have. So not to mince words, why is there something from nothing? That's probably one of the most profound philosophical questions and also one of the most profound cosmological questions. Uh, well, I always say uh, in, in answer to that question that it really is a philosophical question, not a scientific question, because science by definition deals with the natural world. And if you don't have a world, uh, then there's nothing to study. There's no subject matter. And so the question of why is there a world doesn't seem really well posed scientifically. Now, there's a famous quip that people make when asked this, uh, and uh, it is that uh, there's only one way of being nothing but there are an infinite number of ways that something might exist. And so just on grounds of probability, it's more likely that something will exist than nothing. I don't think that really is an explanation. Uh, but it does raise an interesting question, which is uh, the state of, of nothingness uh, is just unique. It's just that there's nothing there. Uh, but the state of there being something raises the whole question of why this rather than that given that there's an infinite number of ways that the universe might exist, why is there this particular way? And that's, that is a scientific question and a very deep one that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Do you find the idea that the universe simply sprang from a random quantum fluctuation philosophically satisfying yourself? Uh, I don't. And I, I think uh, the fundamental problem there, uh, because a lot of commentators just trot that out as if it somehow means that there's no mystery about how the universe came to exist. Uh, the fundamental reason is that it presupposes the laws of quantum physics, uh, and indeed a lot of other laws of physics as well. And so uh, the short answer to your question is, given the laws of physics, the popping into being of a universe in accordance with those laws uh, is, for a physicist, not terribly mysterious. And you might think, well, that's a amazing statement, but let me give you um, a, an analogy that's easy to understand. You might have uh, a radio, radioactive atom, atom of uranium, for example, and that can, can spit out an alpha particle. The alpha particle suddenly is there. And you can ask the question, well, why did it do that just at this particular moment? And according to the laws of quantum physics, 
there's no answer. You can give the odds, what are the chances that particular atom will decay in a certain period of time, you can do that, but you can't say why it happened at that particular moment. According to the laws of quantum mechanics, it is genuinely spontaneous. It's something which is indeterministic. You can't say in advance when it's going to happen. Quantum mechanics is full of those abrupt, spontaneous events. So if you apply quantum mechanics to the universe as a whole, its abrupt appearance is not, I mean, it may seem strange, but it's not fundamentally contradicting anything we understand in the nature of quantum physics. But the key thing is it presupposes the laws of quantum physics. They somehow have to exist. And I'm not going to use the word before the universe because there may have been no before, uh, but they have to transcend the universe. So they have to be uh, somehow logically prior to the universe that they explain. And so you can only buy this story of the universe coming from nothing if you uh, believe that nothing includes the laws of physics, that the laws of physics have to somehow be there for this to happen. And that's a big leap because you can always say, well, where do those laws come from? Uh, did they originate? Uh, and why those laws rather than some others? And most cosmologists don't want to talk about that. So for the universe to appear from nothing, it's going to depend on what we term quantum mechanics. That's exactly right. And, and all of the modern commentary on the Big Bang and the origin of the universe uh, assumes it was some sort of quantum event. And the fundamental issue that divides cosmologists is whether it was literally a quantum fluctuation or a quantum process from nothing at all, including no space and no time, or whether it was something uh, or more modest, which is that there was a pre-existing space-time, uh, pre-existing, I won't use the term universe, uh, but a, a bigger system, and that this uh, quantum fluctuation was a fluctuation in that bigger system. So it really boils down to was there anything there before? What Was there anything before the Big Bang, or was it literally the origin of space and time as well as everything else? And then in my mind, uh, I come back to the point, well, what about the laws of physics? Are we to suppose that those laws sprang into existence along with the universe that they're <laughs> that's, uh, responsible that's a, for? That's a big leap. Uh, I mean, that's a big leap. Yeah, uh, that that uh, sounds... That, that's right. I mean, that would have to be like a package of marvels that just sort of happens to be. Uh, and so the standard picture, if you if you talk to people who do quantum cosmology as a, for a living, uh, they will assume these laws are already there. And if you say, well, where did they come from? They might be prepared to say, well, they might have been a bit different, or maybe haven't got these laws quite right. But they'll assume that there are some laws, because, of course, if there were no laws, then we're not giving a natural explanation for the origin of the universe. Let's assume that there really was nothing, that there, there wasn't any sort of pre-existing space-time continuum at all, that, that it really was, there was nothing, nothing. And that's right. it, that, like, like the concept of eternity, or in eternal inflation. That's a concept that our brains really aren't, aren't built to comprehend, really. Uh, well, people uh, struggle with this idea that there was no before, that the origin of the universe might be the origin of time. And, uh, they, and they feel that's sort of trickery because uh, people want to know, well, what caused the Big Bang? And if I say, well, nothing caused it because there was no preceding epoch for a, a causative agency to exist in, a time itself came to exist with the Big Bang, they think that's some sort of intellectual trickery. But actually, it's a very old idea. Uh, St. Augustine of Hippo said in the 5th century, the world was made with time and not in time. Now, you think, well, that's amazing. Uh, was Augustine uh, somehow predicting general relativity or something of that sort? Well, he declared the world was made with time on theological grounds because he didn't like the idea of a God who existed within time for all eternity didn't right. make a universe. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, if it's a good idea to have a universe, well, you know, why wait? <laughs> forever and ever before doing it. It neatly got around that problem. So he took God outside of time altogether. And in the same way, physicists like to take the laws of physics outside of, of time altogether. And so the coming into being of a universe from uh, no space, no time, uh, seems to be, uh, you know, logically a, a pretty a straightforward idea. And 
there's a very nice metaphor that Stephen Hawking used to use. Uh, he said, asking what comes before the Big Bang is like asking what lies north of the North Pole. And the answer is nothing, not because there's some mysterious land of nothingness north of the North Pole, but because there ain't no such place as north of the North Pole. It's simply uh, undefined. It's not part of the world. Yeah, so the it's way. not applicable to to our right. concept of the North of, of the North right. Pole. Um, and so, same way, what what happened before the Big Bang in this simple picture uh, is not applicable there either. There was was no time. But how would you define in a sentence quantum mechanics? I mean, that's a tall order, but for the layperson, <laughs> how would you define quantum mechanics? The first thing I should say about quantum mechanics: it's the most successful scientific theory in the history of science, and so we're not talking here about some sort of airy-fairy idea that a bunch of uh, academics with their heads in the cloud have jumped <laughs> up. Uh, quantum mechanics is a very practical discipline. Uh, it explains and indeed predicted things like the laser and the transistor and chemical bonds and the behavior of stars and lots of practical devices. And so it works brilliantly, but it's fundamental principle, which seems weird uh, to us in daily life, is that there is uncertainty, inherent uncertainty at the atomic or molecular level, actually at all levels, but we notice it particularly at the atomic and, and molecular level. And by uncertainty, what I mean is that uh, the future is not completely determined by the presence. And let me give you a good example of that simple example. You fire an electron at an atom and so it bounces to the left. You do it again under identical conditions, and next time it bounces to the right. And if you then say, we'll do it a third time, which way will it bounce this time? Uh, quantum mechanics says you cannot say in advance. You just have to do it and see. And so that inherent indeterminism or uncertainty is the essence of quantum mechanics. Now, what you can do, it sounds like anarchy, but it's not, because what you can do is you can work out the betting odds. It may be according to the circumstances, that it's going to be 30% to the left, 70% to the right. You, you can set it up how you want. So quantum mechanics very accurately describes, you do it a million times and it'll tell you uh, what fraction, but you cannot know in any individual case what is going to happen. So that's the essence of quantum mechanics. One of the big questions in cosmology is where did these laws of physics come from in order to enable Absolutely. a quantum fluctuation? that led to the Big Bang and expansion? That's absolutely correct. I keep asking that question. I keep trying to force my distinguished colleagues to confront it. And the answer is usually, well, we don't want to think about that, or uh, we don't, there is no explanation for it, or why don't we just accept that the laws of physics are there, just get on with the job of using them to describe the world. And so most of my colleagues feel very uncomfortable going down that path about the origin of the laws of physics. I occasionally give lectures called uh, Where Do the Laws of Physics Come From? And I can tell that it ruffles feathers in the audience. People really feel uncomfortable when it's presented that way. And it may be that what I'm doing is creating a false dichotomy. It may be that we're just not thinking about these laws in the right way. But you can't have it both ways. If you want to say there's no mystery about the Big Bang, uh, we can explain it with the laws of physics. Well, then you have to assume that the laws of physics uh, somehow exist. And if we're, uh, if you don't want that, if you want to say, well, the laws of physics aren't real things, they're just sort of convenient way of talking about the world, then the origin of the universe is deeply mysterious because we've got something that is just a way of thinking uh, being invoked to explain how a physical system comes to exist. And then that's deeply mysterious. I, I'm happy with the idea that yes, the laws are real uh, and that it should be part of the scientific project to ask where they come from. Uh, we may never answer that, but we could certainly address the question, why do they have the form that they do? Because if they were different, we'd have a different universe. But the interesting thing is, if cosmologists or theoretical physicists all accept this idea that quantum mechanics, well, that the laws of physics have always just been there. That's pretty much ad hoc. I mean, that's an ad hoc kind of way of thinking. Yes, I think uh, 
most of my colleagues, if I were to put that to them, would say, well, you know, it's a hypothesis. We just sort of need to start somewhere and let's assume that these <laughs> laws are, are, are unchanging. Um, uh, there's a little bit of wiggle room there, which we might get into, which is that the laws that you might find on the textbooks that I'm looking at on my bookshelf now uh, might not be the be-all and end-all. It could be that we live in a world uh, which is relatively low energy compared to the heat of the Big Bang, uh, and that what we've got around us are really approximations to some sort of super laws that would apply in these more extreme circumstances. And so the, the laws haven't exactly changed with time, but they have settled down from some earlier version. So that they would concede that. Uh, and so then the question is, well, what, what was already somehow in existence, and we won't say before the universe, but that would explain the universe, it wouldn't necessarily be the laws in the textbook. It might be some string theory laws or, you know, whatever fancy ideas around at the time. Right. Okay. So it's always been a puzzle to me that we evolved on the spherically, on the spherically shaped planet in the midst of a relative vacuum of space-time, what we term space-time, orbiting a ball of thermonuclear fusion, our sun. So what about physics? Let it to be made up of these spherical structures separated by a space-time continuum that are then bound in galaxies. Uh, well, the uh, spherical part refers to the technical terms, the isotropy of space, that it looks the same in all directions, is sort of featureless, just empty space. So it's, it's, uh, it's isotropic, yes. space-time. Yes, so, so okay. if, you, if you just have empty space, there's nothing to distinguish sort of uh, up, down, left, and right, and so on. And so uh, spherical symmetry is a very natural thing uh, to emerge from that. But the question, uh, I think, addresses much more than that, which is why has the universe settled down into these sort of d distinct blobs of, of matter separated by space? And the answer is it wouldn't have done if things hadn't been just so uh, back at the uh, end of the inflationary phase in the Big Bang. And this interests me greatly because I had a hand myself in explaining this. Uh, the, um, the best uh, information we have about the very early universe comes from the cosmic background heat radiation, the fading afterglow of the Big Bang. This is radiation that fills all of space, just under three degrees above absolute zero. It was discovered in the 1960s. It's been mapped to extraordinary precision, most recently with a satellite called Planck. And uh, this radiation is almost completely smooth across the sky. So if I look to my right, measure the temperature, look to my left and measure the temperature of outer space uh, coming to us from the Big Bang, it's almost exactly the same. However, it's not precisely the same. There are tiny variations. Had it been exactly the same, there would be no galaxies, no stars, no planets, and, and no people to uh, wonder about it. It's because the universe embarked on its expansionary phase in a, uh, after inflation in a state of almost but not quite perfect uniformity. And those imperfections represent uh, variations in temperature, as I've explained, but also slight variations in density. So the more dense regions uh, agglomerated material and eventually became clusters of galaxies and galaxies and fragmented down into stars and so on, uh, and uh, with space in between. That seems to almost invoke the top-down mechanism that there was some sort of universal imprint on this cosmological large-scale structure in the universe. Yes. But yes, on the other hand, the paradigm, I thought, was that our Milky Way was a bottom-up kind of thing where it agglomerated over cosmic time with the uh, collection of dwarf galaxies and dark matter etc etc yes yes uh, it, it is of course a mixture of both but the point is that the on the largest scale uh, the big structures formed first and, and we can see if we look back through Hubble Space Telescope and so on we can see uh, the how these first clusters of galaxies and things are are forming from the smooth gases. So it wasn't the case that the Big Bang coughed out smooth gas, which made stars, and the stars all got together into galaxies. It's very much the large-scale structure being present. We can even see it in this cosmic 
background radiation. So but you're the, saying the, you're actually saying superclusters and the cosmic web and the, and and these this makeup this map of cosmic voids which extend for for billions of light years super voids and superclusters and cosmic and the cosmic web as we've imaged it come from a kind of a an imprint we can see evidence for this superstructure these large scale this large scale structure at 380,000 years after the big bang in the microwave well, well, is that right in the cosmic microwave uh, background not quite, not quite no okay uh, so it's, it's not a question <laughs> okay. of well well let's look at some particular supercluster and see if we can trace it all the way back to you can't do that okay yes uh, it's more that if there wasn't a, a, a degree of variation of a few parts per million back at that time there would be no large-scale structure or if the variations were bigger uh, we would have uh, much more uh, concentration that have uh, mostly giant black holes rather than, than galaxies. So that there's a sort of fine-tuning in the degree of fluctuation. So you're right to use the word imprinting because uh, imprinted in that background radiation are these fluctuations on all scales. And it, what it seems, uh, and this refers to the work that I did in the 1970s with a student, Tim Bunch, these fluctuations seem to be quantum fluctuations. We were talking about this earlier. Um, quantum fluctuations in the inflationary phase of the universe have predict precisely the form of the large-scale structure of the universe. And so uh, when you ask me, well, is it a surprise that we have a universe with objects and space in between? The answer is, well, you've got to get things right. You have to have these quantum fluctuations imprinting this structure on the universe, the precursors of all these large-scale systems we've been talking about, the, those precursors were there, and the standard explanation may be wrong, but the standard explanation has been for 20 or 30 years is that these are quantum fluctuations writ large and frozen in the sky. And, uh, and that was, as I say, that was work I did with Tim Bunch in the 1970s, and we did it for entirely academic reasons. Tim needed to get his PhD, it was something we could solve, uh, and we never thought it would find application. Uh, but within uh, just a few years, people were invoking this set of calculations uh, to explain the fluctuations in the cosmic background radiation. So it's an extraordinary thing when I look back on it. So in your book, you mention that you reference the mysterious coal spot of Eridanus. What, what do yes. you mean by that, and, and where is that? It's yes, well, now this follows on very naturally from what we've just been talking about, because I've said that the uh, radiation from the Big Bang is remarkably uniform across the sky, but if it was totally uniform, we wouldn't have any galaxies right. or anything. Yep. Uh, so there are these irregularities of a few parts per million uh, embedded, uh, imprinted in this radiation, which might be quantum fluctuations. Um, but And so everything fits beautifully, that is, that the the quantum fluctuation uh, in inflation theory uh, fits beautifully the statistical properties of the microwave background uh, radiation, but not absolutely perfectly. There are anomalies. There's uh, three or four very puzzling anomalies uh, on, on the large scale. On the small scale, it works better, but on larger scales, it doesn't. And one of these anomalies uh, is an unusually cold patch in the southern sky, and it's... Um, a fluctuation from the average temperature uh, several times larger than what it would be, what you would expect if it was just a sort of standard random statistical fluctuation. And uh, it's pretty large. I mean, like the size of the moon or something. Uh, I mean, uh, the apparent uh, diameter. Uh, and therefore, it represents a, a huge, what seems to be like a super void in the universe. And nobody really has an explanation for it. Uh, and it could be that, the, that it, it is just, you know, one of those things that we live in a universe that's got a blemish for some reason. Or it could be uh, that this is a hint at something uh, fundamentally outside of our present understanding, maybe something before the Big Bang or beyond the Big Bang, or uh, in, in one case, the possibility that this represents a, a scar uh, of 
another universe bumping into ours. All these ideas have been put out there. Uh, uh, nobody really knows the answer. And I assume it gets its name because it's in the direction of the constellation Eridanus. Yes, that's right, which is in the Southern Hemisphere. It's not so well known to people in the Northern Hemisphere. Now, is there a corresponding super void that lies in that direction? Well, in a way, uh, the, um, the low, particularly low temperature of that patch of sky uh, represents a super void. Uh, that is, that the, that the density of material there is, uh, appears to be, I mean, it always depends on observations, but it appears to be uh, less than the average. So there's, there's something sort of missing, so to speak, from that patch of, of the universe. And, but, it's, and it's a big patch. It's not I, I understand one, that, but I mean, what, what I'm saying is, can you actually correlate it to a present-day super void that we have observed with optical telescopes? Uh, well, people have certainly done those observations, and yes, it's... Uh, uh, so there does, there, there does seem to be a correlation between this cold spot in Eridanus on the cosmic microwave background, maybe some sort of imprint or maybe some relic of an ancient collision with another universe or a cosmic bubble and a super void as we know well know at least today. an unusual distribution of galaxies aha uh-huh. okay and, and, and it may be uh, that it's more like there are more smaller ones than big ones or something and i don't know and i suspect that the ob- it's 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 pretty much on the limits of what has been observed so this is this is still provisional information that i'm well, giving you now well since you brought it up let's talk about multiverses i mean multiverses are a very sexy topic in cosmology and have been for the past 20 years and they're related to all sorts of explanations to explain uh, current day cosmology but what evidence is a multiverse what is basically they're not completely other universes per se but they are cosmic bubbles what how would you define a multiverse well, what I usually say is if the Big Bang was a natural event, and we've been talking about what that would mean, but if it's a natural event, then it would be a bit strange if it happened only once. And so if something can go bang and make a universe, you might expect that it, there'd be many bangs uh, scattered throughout space and time. And if by universe, what we mean is the universe we see, uh, then this could be like a sort of gigantic bubble uh, that um, uh, expanded from something very small, but is of finite dimension, and that may be huge, maybe very much bigger than what we see. Uh, but that there will be other bubbles, uh, and uh, if you took a god's eye view, this multiverse, as people sometimes call it, uh, of of many bubbles, maybe an infinite number of bubbles, uh, would show these bubbles flying apart from each other, uh, probably much faster than they themselves expand. And so uh, there's a sort of huge act of faith involved, if you want to believe this, uh, that there will be uh, way, way beyond what we can observe, other bubbles uh, like our universe. And each bubble may have a life cycle, a birth, uh, an evolution, and then maybe a death. But the entire assemblage of bubbles will be eternal. It's often called eternal inflation, no beginning and no end, but individual bubbles have their particular life cycle and we're in one of these bubbles and as you said it's a very popular idea so what evidence is there for multiverses some detractors of the multiverse idea say well it's not science because there's no way of testing it Uh, that's not entirely true there's a sort of weak test that you can apply it's a statistical test now one of the reasons that people like this multiverse idea is that we were talking about the nature of the laws of physics and are they fixed? And I mentioned that uh, they, uh, uh, the laws that we find in our textbook uh, might be uh, low energy limits of some sort of super law that would apply uh, very early in the Big Bang at the very high temperatures. But that super law might vary from one universe to another uh, or the way it congeals out into the low energy laws might vary from one universe to another. And the upshot of this is we can imagine these other universes would have different laws. And the reason people like that idea is because in our universe, the laws of physics seem remarkably well suited for the emergence of life. It looks like a fix. It looks as though the universe is rigged in favor of life. And that sounds horribly like design. And so 
what appeals to many scientists is the idea that it's not design at all, uh, that the vast majority of universities would not be suitable for life, uh, but just here and there, randomly, you would have a Goldilocks universe where things would be just right for life. And obviously, it's no surprise we're living in one of those. Um, and so that's an appealing explanation for a lot of cosmologists. And you think, well, how would you test that? And there is a way of testing it uh, statistically rather weakly. Um, and it's best given by an, an analogy that Martin Rees came up with. I think it's very instructive. Um, that the orbits of planets around the sun are actually, they're not circular, they're elliptical. And ellipses can be sort of long and skinny, or they can be nearly circular. And uh, people probably imagine that the Earth's orbit is uh, pretty nearly circular, and that's right. And you can say, well, why is that? You know, are we is this a strange coincidence? Uh, and the answer is, well, if it were uh, grossly elliptical, we wouldn't be here because uh, life on Earth would be very difficult. So the advanced life would be very difficult because if you have a big elliptic, elliptical orbit, you'd have huge climatic excursions. So it's no surprise that we find that our orbit is nearly circular. But supposing we found with careful measurement that it was circular to one part in a trillion or something, that's completely unnecessary uh, to, from the point of view of the existence of life. Um, that would imply some sort of law-like regularity that we'd overlooked. Uh, but the truth of the matter is that the eccentricity of the Earth's orbit, its uh, d degree of uh, elongation, uh, is sort of typical. It's about sort of in the middle of what would be uh, favorable biologically. And so that shows that this explanation, we live on a planet which has uh, a, an almost but not completely circular orbit, um, make, makes a lot of sense because we selected it biologically by our very presence. It's, it's the one that's suitable for life. But on the other hand, some astronomers now think that a G-type star, which is our star, is not the, necessarily the best suited for intelligent life. A lot of them think orange dwarfs, uh, the K-stars, would be better, K-dwarf would be better suited. And then you also noted, not to digress, uh, uh, for time's sake, but you mentioned Fred Adams, and I think he's uh, from the University of Michigan. I'm, I'm my yes. mind okay. Uh, actually, thinks that we could live in a in a in a more habitable universe as a whole. I, I mean, you make this he makes this argument, or and you mention it in the book. It was quite interesting uh, that uh, essentially our cosmic real estate is not the best suited for astrobiology, even. Uh, that's right. We're, it it's, uh, would appear that this is not the optimal universe. It um, doesn't contradict what I just said, because the, the point being that evidence for a multiverse uh, is that our universe would be sort of typical. It wouldn't be perfect, just like the uh, planetary orbit. We don't live in an exactly circular uh, orbit. But it's good uh, enough. It's good, en it's good enough for, for complex life to evolve it's, and for us to be enough. talking about it. That's but right, But on the other right. hand, you know, we are just in our infancy in exploring, you know, extrasolar planets and extrasolar solar systems and, and looking for an Earth 2.0. And in one galaxy, you know, out of billions of hundreds of billions of galaxies, we have about 400 billion stars. When I did my book uh, 20 years ago, you know, I came away and people said there were 400 billion stars. The canonical, the, uh, the standard conventional idea that there at that time in textbooks was that our our uh, galaxy had 200 billion stars but i noticed that you put in your book 400 billion i was glad to see that my point is we think we're very special and i i think we are pretty special but we don't know whether orange dwarfs might harbor planets that are even more suited to life than our earth yes we we have really uh, two problems here about the nature of life. One is why is the universe as a whole even habitable? That is, why do the laws of physics and the structure of the entire universe uh, permit the emergence of life in just one place? That's the first thing. And then the second thing is, is the universe set up in such a way as to optimize the emergence of life? Uh, is it going to be teeming with life or uh, is it very sparsely distributed? And if it is teeming with life, it's our 
uh, own planet and uh, host star typical or are we outliers? Uh, we don't know the answers to any of these things. Uh, but the, the fundamental uh, problem I think that mystifies a, a lot of cosmologists is why the universe permits life at all in the first place. Let's touch on your book's title, which is What's Eating the Universe? It really refers to the fact that our own cosmos could potentially undergo a vacuum energy decay that would take it to a lower energy level, basically unleashing a tsunami that would wipe out everything in the observable universe. You write, there may be no warning. We might know our universe was being wrecked only when the wall arrived and annihilated us and everything else faster than the speed of thought. I thought, uh, 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 instead of faster than the speed of light, literally faster than the speed of thought. So, in other words, the basic idea is our our cosmic uh, vacuum energy would undergo a transition from its current state to a, a lower energy state. And this would cause a, a tsunami-type wave that would just wipe us out. Yes, it's only one of the ways that the universe could be eaten or gobbled up. We were talking about earlier uh, other universes, other bubbles. It's possible that another bubble would uh, crash into ours and swallow us up wholesale. Now, that isn't going to happen very quickly. The scenario of the uh, bubble of uh, vacuum uh, is something that could happen like tomorrow. And, uh, And And there might be no warning for that one. Uh, That's right. And the reason here, uh, you know, what what are we talking about here? It's another one of these quantum things. And so we were talking earlier about what is quantum mechanics. Well, one of the things it it explains is the energy levels of atoms. Atoms can become excited. Uh, If an atom is excited, then it will decay down to its ground state and emit a photon. And this is sort of standard uh, basic physics. Uh, Well, in the same way that atoms can be in excited states, so can the vacuum be in an excited quantum state. And we know there's energy in the vacuum. Uh, You can measure it. uh, And this quantum vacuum energy is uh, responsible, for example, for uh, uh, the Hawking effect, that black holes are not black but emit heat radiation. That all has to do with the nature of the quantum vacuum. And so the question before us is, is the quantum vacuum that's all around us and inside us the lowest energy state that can exist? And if there is an energy state of a lower vacuum, then if something triggers a transition to that, anywhere in the universe, it would expand out uh, close to the speed of light and uh, basically engulf everything in its path. And let me be clear about this. So uh, the quantum vacuum, as we know it uh, in the the space continuum, let's say between here and the moon, you're saying that the space-time continuum between here and our, our moon is filled with quantum energy at very low levels. Is that right? Yes, that's exactly right. And you can measure this in the lab, and it has been measured many times. Uh, And normally, this vacuum energy is not anything that uh, is going to manifest itself very clearly. It does in some technology, some nanotechnology. It's really important. Uh, But the most uh, dramatic manifestation of it is the fact that the universe is expanding at an accelerating rate. That's something called dark energy. And a simple interpretation of that is it's actually the energy of the quantum vacuum that's uh, that's bringing that about. So it and it's a negative energy. It's a it's a repulsive energy, right? Yes, it's repulsive um, uh, for technical reasons we don't need to get into. But that's exactly right. It's like anti gravity. Okay, and so what you're saying is this existing level of vacuum energy, which we can test and we know is is out there, but very hard to harness may transition to a lower energy state and that would set off a catastrophe i mean that would basically obliterate the universe as we know it is that what you're saying that's right that's right so this isn't just uh, you know something that would destroy our planet or our star something of that sort it would literally it's unstoppably spread out and engulf the universe uh, and it could, so of course such a thing could happen anywhere in the universe uh, and come at us. It's not this that you know some mad scientist is going to do this in a lab and and destroy the universe. Hope not. Uh, but no, it's uh, if there was some natural process somewhere that uh, triggered that, uh, then 
uh, of course, there'd been absolutely nothing we could do about it, and we wouldn't really know about it until it arrived. And so that's a, a very scary prospect. And the only consolation I can give to the people listening to this who might be getting uneasy is that, well, you know, it hasn't happened in 13.8 billion years uh, since the universe began, uh, so it would be unlikely to happen next week. But, uh, of course, it is possible. And here, here's a, the $64,000 question. What would trigger it? Would it just be a quantum fluctuation that would trigger this transition to a lower energy state? So it's a little bit like, we, you know, earlier we were talking about uh, the, the decay of a uranium atom. Uh, uranium uh, has a half-life of about four and a half billion years. So take any given uranium atom, and it's not going to be very exciting to watch. Uh, you're super, uh, you know, for a long, long period of time. But then one day, it will suddenly decay. Uh, and you think, well, why did it pick that day? You know, why uh, five o'clock on a Tuesday? Uh, the, the quantum mechanics says there's always a probability. Uh, and it may be a very low probability. So we could live in a universe which has uh, an unstable quantum vacuum with a very low probability of decaying. And because we don't know uh, enough about the quantum vacuum, we can't work out what those odds are. But it certainly is entirely possible uh, that uh, it's got to decay uh, a half-life of, you know, 20 billion years or something, in which case it, this could happen. Uh, you could work out the odds. We don't know how to put the numbers in, but the concept is a very well understood one, and it's been around for quite a while. This is not something new uh, in my book. Um, it's an idea that has been around since uh, at least the 1980s. And then you mention also in the book there's another c catastrophe that might include an expanding bubble of nothing which could wipe us yeah, this out. Is a, <laughs> this is a, a really weird one because we've been talking earlier about the Big Bang, you know, perhaps being um, a universe coming into existence from literally nothing. That is not an empty space, but uh, but no space, no time uh, before the Big Bang. Well, if we can uh, imagine uh, a more complicated architecture, uh, we can think, well, there's nothing beyond or before the Big Bang, uh, no space, no time. Uh, same thing inside a black hole, the, the stuff collapses to a singularity, nothing beyond that. So we can imagine uh, something like a Swiss cheese where we've got bubbles of nothing embedded in space. And an empty space is not nothing. So, but we can imagine there being bubbles of nothing, and these bubbles would expand and join and eventually uh, gobble up all of the space that exists. So I'm not talking about annihilating matter, I'm talking about space itself being annihilated or swallowed by bubbles of nothing. Now, that's, of course, a, a theoretical prediction. Uh, it, it depends on accepting certain aspects of physics that uh, could be questioned, but nevertheless, it's got... Uh, a theoretical basis. It's not that somebody dreamt <coughs> up, well, maybe that could happen. Uh, it, there, there are uh, fundamental theories involving quantum mechanics and particle physics and so on uh, that will predict such a thing would be possible. So you quote Galileo in your book that, quote, the great book of nature is written in the language of mathematics without which one wanders in vain through a dark labyrinth. The key to the universe, said Galileo, lay with mathematical decryption. And this is absolutely fundamental, and it's so often overlooked because people feel science, engineering, you know, it's all these boring equations and they get put off. Uh, they never stop to think, well, where do these equations come from and why do they work? And I'll tell you a little story from my high school days. Uh, I think I was about 16. And... Uh, I took a fancy to a young lady, uh, and in uh, the British education system, you had to specialise at the age of uh, 16 into uh, sciences or arts, and I picked the sciences, she picked the arts. So we never had any classes uh, together, uh, but uh, if we had homework, then this would often be done in the school library, and that's where I would see her. And I vividly remember her sitting opposite me one day and I was doing my homework. I can even remember what it was. I was uh, trying to work out the range of a ball thrown up an inclined plane. It's sort of stand and you're turning mechanics that high school kids uh, learn how to solve that problem. And so I was scribbling away with my equations and she looked across and she said, well, what are you doing? And I said, um, I'm trying to 
calculate the range of a ball thrown up an inclined plane. And she looked very puzzled and she said, but how can you do that by writing things on bits of paper? (laughs) (laughs) And I thought at the time, you know, what a stupid girl. (laughs) But actually, it's a a very profound problem, as I realise in retrospect, very profound issue that that we can mirror uh, the real world uh, through mathematical objects and relationships, which we can write down on bits of paper, on a blackboard, and so on, uh, and that, that, that beneath all of the complexity of nature is uh, d- deep, harmonious principles that are mathematical expressions. And if we can figure out what they are, as Newton made a Galileo, Newton made a start on that, uh, we can then use mathematics not only to describe the world, so it's not just a sort of after the event curve fitting or anything like that. It's a way of predicting the existence of things we could never know uh, any other way. So a very practical thing is you can use uh, Newton's equations to uh, work out the uh, path of a spacecraft going to Mars, and uh, and it works brilliantly. Uh, But I think more profound is uh, that when you get deeper and deeper into theoretical physics with these mathematical manipulations, you make discoveries that way. So uh, Maxwell famously discovered the existence of of radio waves by combining the laws of electricity and magnetism, wrote down the equations for both of these, put them together, and found that when they interleaved, they predicted wave-like phenomena that moved at the speed of light, uh, but could have any wavelengths, like radio waves. Uh, That, if Maxwell hadn't done that, it may be that never, we would never have known that radio waves exist. You can't see them, you can't feel them. Um, they came out of mathematical manipulation. You note in the, your book that our universe has, quote, engineered its own comprehension, and in doing so, has enabled us to be privy to at least some of its innermost secrets, but hardly all. So why is the cosmos, and this is a question that you raise in your book, why is the cosmos even remotely comprehensible to humans? I think this is the most profound of all the cosmic mysteries. So my book is a celebration of the golden age of cosmology, which really began with the COBE satellite, the first satellite to map the cosmic background radiation. And it's uh, gone in leaps and bounds during my career. So it's a very high precision science now. But there are a lot of riddles, and we've been talking about some of them, some of these anomalies and things. Uh, but for me, the greatest riddle of all is the comprehensibility of the universe. Uh, Einstein uh, also said that the, uh, the the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible. I think it is just astonishing. Uh, we were talking about uh, uh, me writing down equations on a bit of paper to predict how uh, a, a projectile would behave, uh, and that's in a very small way, part of what theoretical physicists are doing all the time. We have that ability uh, to uncover the, these deep laws that connect together different aspects of the world in ways that we simply do not notice in daily life. We don't see these laws. Uh, when Newton saw the apple fall, he saw a falling apple. Uh, that's what, what we would always see. We don't see a set of differential equations. Uh, that has to be deduced Uh, by the human intellect. How is it that humans have that ability to decode nature uh, at such a deep level? It's not just a matter of what we sort of figured out when the sun will rise because we watch for for the patterns, uh, that we figured out that there exists gravitational waves and Higgs bosons and things like that. Uh, The universe has has somehow from blundering purposeless forces and molecules has put together entities that are not just alive, not just conscious uh, observers, but comprehenders, uh, entities like us who can make sense of it all. And the, the universe, you can make sense of it. It's not just a hodgepodge of odds and ends thrown together. It is a system with deep principles, uh, ma- mathematical principles, as I've explained, that make sense to us. And so when we do experiments, we do the next big thing in particle physics or astronomy or something like that, we don't do it on the expectation that what we find will be nonsensical. We expect there to be some new part of the jigsaw and that there is a jigsaw and there is a pattern uh, and it's partially filled and that heroically human beings have been able to uh, put together a glimpse uh, part of part of that uh, amazing pattern that, that we call nature. 
So why then are cosmologists so low to attach any meaning to the universe? Neither science nor religion really answers the big questions about the cosmos. So why is there not more open discussion about what we can learn from the meaning of the universe from the way it's constructed? I think a lot of the problem about this uh, lack of, uh, of um, quality discussion about these uh, deep questions of existence uh, stems from a very low intellectual level that is brought to bear. The way I like to describe it is that religion was uh, humankind's first attempt to make sense of the world. Science was the next great example of trying to make sense of the world. Um, we don't know it's going to stop there. Uh, there may be other systems of thought uh, that will be even more satisfying uh, in the future. But my question to you is, as a scientist, when these big questions are asked, why does the science community run from them? I, I just can't understand why they're, why they're always so flippant when asked these big questions. Uh, well, I think part of the answer uh, why most scientists shy away from discussing uh, questions of meaning and so forth uh, is because... Uh, most scientists are not big picture scientists, big picture physicists or cosmologists. They're probably working in some little corner of a discipline which is highly technical and may have lots of important practical applications. Uh, and they really wouldn't be concerning themselves too much with, well, you know, I'm applying quantum mechanics to this particular solid to try to build a better um, uh, electronic component. But where do those laws come from? They're, they're too busy getting on with the real work. And so a lot, of, a lot of scientists, I think, are just not drawn to science because of confronting the big questions. I was, right from the outset, I wanted to uh, think about uh, what, what is there a meaning to the universe? Why, why am I living now? Uh, uh, how will the universe end? You know, these big things always uh, preoccupied my attention. So naturally, I, I'm gravitated to it in it doesn't have to be cosmology. It might be things like the origin of life or the nature of consciousness or uh, these sort of really deep questions. Uh, these people really do love to uh, stand back and ask these bigger questions. I think we all recognize that we uh, either may never have an answer or that we're perhaps framing the questions using the wrong concepts, that it may be that we'll make more progress by uh, a new, devising a new conceptual framework in which to fit the facts of science. And then we might ask rather different sorts of questions and what does it all mean? But um, well, there certainly are scientists who, who like to talk about those things. I'm glad to hear that. But at, at the end of the day, all I'm trying to say is I wish they were more publicly open about their views on such things. Too frequently, the science community uses religion as the whipping boy, you know, for anything that any question that they can't answer or or a question that is uh, with which they're uncomfortable. And the reason I was attracted to astronomy, the reason it keeps drawing me back in, is because I love the big questions, just like you. And uh, right. that's the mystery of it, is what makes me continue interviewing people and writing articles. We, we must stick together, because I think, you know, we're on the same side. And I don't shy away from putting those ideas out there. And I'm always very clear to say, I don't have fixed answers. I don't have... Uh, I'm just fascinated by the questions. And but this, but, and but trashing, re but all I'm discussion. trying to say is trashing religion, regardless of of your religious views, or being flippant, you know, just for right. a soundbite. That doesn't do anybody any favors. No, you know. the intellectual quality of a lot of that discussion is very low, uh, and I think we need to elevate it. Exactly. Okay, you were friends with the the late celebrated theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking. Uh, you, yes. I believe you met him in 1970, or you became friends yes. with him in 1970. And if there's one thing that you gleaned from your time with Hawking in terms of science or cosmology that the general public might not appreciate, what would that be? I first knew uh, Stephen in the uh, early 1970s. He was uh, down the corridor from my office in Cambridge, and in those days he propelled his own wheelchair. Uh, but he was already... Uh, very seriously disabled. He could uh, vocalize, but it was hard to understand his speech. And uh, occasionally he would uh, sign his name in a very scrawly writing. And of course, 
he didn't expect to live more than a year or two and nobody else expected him to live but he was working on the most amazing things and i was very struck in those early days how can he do this work he can't stand at a blackboard and write down the equations can't even do as i mentioned in the school library uh, uh, sit there writing on on bits of paper now he did of course have uh, students who could put up equations and they could look at them and so on uh, but um, Stephen was very heroic about uh, this limitation uh, and what he said was that his inability to get as it were lost in the technical details that uh, bedevil most of us we cover too many bits of paper with equations uh, is he his he cultivated ways of thinking through the essence of a problem visually uh, and his classic a result that black holes are not black but emit heat radiation. When you look at that, it's a sort of geometrical construction. I can now see it in, in my own mind, these modes propagating back through the, the star into the in region and the way uh, the modes of the field uh, get uh, more and more red shifted or blue shifted. And all of this you can sort of put in mental imagery without writing anything down, um, actually working out the uh, the answer, the mathematics, uh, is is a bit of a challenge. But he, what he showed in that uh, classic paper is fundamentally an extremely simple result. That the temperature, black holes uh, emit heat radiation with a distinctive spectrum and a temperature that uh, is inversely proportional to the mass. And that's it. I mean, it's one of the simplest equations in physics. And the fact he could see that an imploding star when it settled down, would lead to such a simple result, I think uh, stemmed in part from his inability to think, well, that's a complicated problem, but I'll go about it, I'll you know, write all the equations down, I'll try to solve them on a computer or something. Didn't do any of that. So he had this, uh, cultivated this extraordinary insight and, and geometrical thinking. I'm not sure how well that is appreciated, uh, that he couldn't actually do the mathematics that the rest of us need to do to solve problems Could, couldn't physically do it so what puzzles you most about our existence we've touched on uh, the answer to that already which is why is the universe comprehensible i still find this astonishing um i, I also find astonishing the fact that many of my colleagues just don't get it um and that's because of course they're trained to do science and the way you do it is you um, study something, you do experiments, you write down equations, you try and model it, and of course it works because that's what you're paid to do. Um, and we take it for granted. It's been so successful, science is so successful, that we take for granted that the scientific method is going to yield fruit. And I, when I stand back and look at that, I still find it absolutely amazing. It's, uh, first of all, that the universe is put together in any case with simple mathematical principles, which are not present uh, in our observations. You've got to deduce their existence, but uh, it's easy to imagine a world uh, which is not organized in that manner with simple underlying mathematics. That's the first thing. But the second thing is that this particular species, Homo sapiens, is able to come up with the mathematics that does it. Mathematics is a product of the human mind, and yet somehow uh, it is uh, finds its application to the deepest processes in nature. Uh, and that connection between the human intellect and the, uh, uh, the evolution of human cognition and our, uh, our intellectual architecture, all of that, which would seem to have nothing whatever to do with black holes or quantum mechanics or anything, it's just surviving in the jungle, that all that fits together so well that we've made these spectacular advances. We, we may not solve everything, uh, it could be we'll get stuck very soon, but uh, we have surely made enormous and impressive progress in this, this one species on this planet. And I, it's still, for me, uh, a deep, deep mystery that we're able to do this. Paul, do you have a way that listeners can contact you via social media or email if they want to comment or learn more? E email is the best way, and uh, we have an email address for uh, the Beyond Center, where I'm director of the Beyond Center, but uh, colleagues here as well, and we do our best in public outreach to, uh, to to get to people with interest in these big questions. And the email address is it's all lowercase. Deep thought 
that's all one word, at ASU, which is, of course, Arizona State University, asu.edu. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Paul Davies, thanks so much for chatting about the ultimate mysteries of the cosmos. Well, it's been my pleasure, and I hope I can come on again. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>